Hello, hello. Welcome to Better Words. I'm Caitlin from Just a Bookish Babe. And I'm Michelle from the Unfinished Bookshelf. And we are so, so, so excited this morning. Yes, this morning. Because we saw Eliza last night. Oh, she was amazing. So, so funny. I don't think I stopped laughing the whole set. And there was a a period of jokes where she was trying to do an Aussie and Kiwi accent that I was like crying laughing. Netflix. Netflix. Like squeezing a wallaby. Oh my god! Hopefully that like those some of those accents jokes from like touring makes it into her next special or something. So it was so good. And also, um, if you don't follow her on Instagram, you really should because her stories are hilarious. And at the moment, she's doing this character called Tamblin, and um, it's just a bit like it's just a piss take of all the bloggers and stuff out there but it's really funny because it's so true so and we've been watching it being like must not become (laughs) tamblin but also if you weren't already following her on instagram you should go check out her profile because we made t-shirts and she's posted a photo she posted a photo of us we're on her gram yeah so we had vip tickets which michelle very kindly got very early for us yeah I'm always on the pre-sale I was like I thought the pre-sale opened Monday but then like I think I, mem- I remember texting you guys on like the Friday night being like oh my god it's open now if you sign up for this and I was like I need to get these tickets I don't even know what I was doing but I think I checked my phone and it was like oh my god pre-sale's open okay just got VIP tickets hoped you wanted them and I was like yeah cool whatever no, like, okay it was this much don't care I'm getting them yep <laughs> And I'm so glad you did because we were in the front row it and we got so to... good. I can't believe we're in the front row. I know. I've never been in the front row for anything. But yeah, we were in the front row. We got to meet her. We made shirts. So yeah, I'm sure you'll see the photo from that soon. Um, the Tivoli or Tivoli, however you meant to say it. Again, amazing venue. I've been there for My Favourite Murder and Tap 10 Looks 3 and they're always really, really awesome. So yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. I really liked it. Yeah, it was is a very cool venue, very cool, and the staff are always like super super nice as well. Mm-hmm. So that always makes the experience what like what just am I trying nicer. to say? <laughs> nicer, <laughs> yeah, nicer. Yeah, so we've just had a quick one night in Brisbane. So um, I would try and lie and say we did a reading by the pool, but I don't think we actually read. We just like swam and took photos. I read two pages. Congratulations, Michelle. (laughs) But we did maximize the fact that this has like a resort style pool and it was empty and it was overcast. So it was like perfectly diffused light for photos and hashtag do it for the gram. You'll see those photos later too. Hashtag Tamblin time. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah, we did. We got full Tamblin. Yeah. So on the plane here, I finished reading Domina by L.S. Hilton. And on the plane back today, I will be reading Normal People by Sally Rooney, which I'm really looking forward to because I've heard really wonderful things. I don't know about you, but my Instagram has been filled with this book for the last maybe like two or three months, whenever it came out. Yeah. I don't know. I was sent it a little while ago. I wish I got to it sooner, but I really can't wait to read it. I think it's going to be great. I... I'm disappointed in myself now that I didn't pick up conversations in front with friends in Ireland because it was one of the suggestions that the lady in this bookshop in Dublin was like, this one you might like. And I was like, no, give me crime. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I'm a bit sad that I didn't. Um, but I think after that, I re- like, I noticed the name first and then I just saw normal people everywhere. But I love the cover. Very, very pretty cover. Yeah. It's a really cool cover. I really like it. 
Yeah. It took me ages to realize that there were people in the sardine can. But it's really cute, isn't yeah, it? it? Yeah, it is. Cause it, well, it's hard sometimes on Instagram. Like it might be like a smaller photo and it took me ages to realize that that's what the cover was and the detail is really pretty. Yeah. So, yeah. So what are you reading? Um, I'm still reading The Clockmaker's Daughter, uh, which I started for the Nook and Burrow Book Club November. Um, clearly it's not November anymore, but the reason I'm still reading it is because we had some emergency situations at home oh wow here we go yeah well let's just we'll talk about that in a minute but basically I'm loving Kate Morton um I love her books this one if you haven't read Kate Morton before I wouldn't start with this because it is a more complicated timeline than some of her other books so if you're like seeing the clockmaker's daughter and thinking should I read it I've never read anything by her don't read the clockmaker's daughter go back and read the lake house which is the novel she released prior to this and I feel like that's a good intro to her work because even I like I've read like five five of her books um and even I was at first finding the timeline a little bit confusing to get into so it took me a bit to get into it's like a 600 page book I'm about 380 pages through now so I'm like over halfway but it did take me maybe like 100 pages and then I felt like I understood all the different timelines Mm -hmm. and all the different characters and I'm also sorry Sorry, I was just gonna say you know that's interesting I saw something about this the other day about like when to give up on a book and I saw I think it was just like a comment on someone's Instagram post about this and I don't remember who it was or what it was exactly but it was some people were saying oh I give a book like 50 pages or something and someone said like 10 to 20 percent because you can't judge a 600 page book by the first 10 pages you have to you know read a fair amount yeah. and it's like whereas like with a you know a smaller contemporary like 200 300 page book like if you're not into it in 50 pages guess what you're a quarter three like don't waste your time yeah and if you've got 100 pages in just keep going because yeah. um I mean I've done that I've done that with books I didn't particularly enjoy and you know I dnf but sometimes I've held on to like halfway like, and then I'm like just finish it then it yeah. counts towards my reading exactly. goal <laughs> exactly like oh I'll just finish it now you know like a almost all the way through Um, yeah I've definitely done that before as well yeah and mainly with thrillers too because I'm like well now I want to know who the killer is even if I'm not enjoying it like I have to know so um yeah there's a but there's a couple of books I'm I'm happy to DNF after like I think 70 to 80 is usually for me I start to know whether you like the tone enough to keep going um so I'm loving Clockmaker's Daughter and on the plane down here I started because Clockmaker's Daughter is huge and I didn't want to bring it with me Um, and I also didn't take that's the other reason I've been reading it so long because I didn't take it with me to Melbourne so I had a bit of like a week break where I could have finished it Um, so I have been reading The Lost Man by Jane Harper so she's really famous for The Dry which I've not read yet but I keep hearing people talk about so when I got the opportunity to review this version um like her latest book I was like yeah sure I've not read any of her stuff I'll read it happy to say it she lives up to the hype so far I'm really enjoying it it's set in like far far western Queensland in the outback um which I think she just does a really good job of bringing that landscape to life so I'm enjoying that one and kind of I wouldn't say racing through it but like I'm like a quarter of the way through and I only really started it on the plane. So like Mm. I'm impressed that it's easy to read. Yeah. Speaking of racing through things, I started watching Parks and Recreation like I want to say a week ago 
maybe a week and a half ago. And I'm already like halfway through season three. Oh my god! Because it's so easy to watch. It's just like it's I mean, half an hour episodes. Yeah, like yeah. twenty minutes. The first season was also only like eight episodes, whereas the rest are your standard twenty-two, twenty-four sitcom sort of season. But again, twenty-minute episodes. They're just so digestible, and like I don't even notice sometimes mm. when it's like gone to the next episode because it's just like goes keeps going it's but it's so good i have to say i think i was saying to jack the other day that i don't know if i would love it as much if i wasn't a huge fan of amy poehler adam scott aubrey plaza chris pratt like i mean the cast is awesome but like if you didn't know who any of those people were you'd probably think it was like really boring and like you you might laugh and but, but you'd be like but i don't what like this is such a strange show because it's just I mean, office comedy, you know, yeah. but it's it's very, very funny. <laughs> um, I just remembered something I've been watching that I totally forgot about um, and I'm watching it on BBC first. So I'm watching episode by episode, even though my boss was like, here, I'll just give you the episodes, um, which I don't really have time to watch anyway. But it's called Press and it is about two newspapers in London, which are quite clearly The Sun and The Guardian, <laughs> but they're called The Post and the Herald, but like the font and everything is obviously like, like the post yeah, has don't a red try and circle. Lie to me. Yeah. Like I know what this is, um, and it's it's quite obvious that that and like the Herald has it has is run by a trust the same way the Guardian is, and they use the some sort of font, and so it's very clear, but it's very very clever. Um, it's it's very much a look at tabloid versus, um, I guess air quote it's more reputable journalism mm. um i know which side of the fence i'm on uh, i definitely okay. identify with holly from the herald and i have those ethics um even if it means you lose great stories sometimes um because you i guess seek out the more ethical route to telling that story um but I'm finding it very interesting there's lots of twists yeah, and turns. no shocker british journalism like <laughs> But it is, it's, it's quite like usually if something is done about your industry, you can be quite critical, but this is very, very good and very When insightful. have you ever been critical about a book I or a TV have. show or a movie about journalism? No, because the ones I talk about on here are genuinely good ones like Spotlight or The Post, but there have been other books where, you know, it's like, oh, she's a journalist and like it doesn't. It doesn't it is translate. It's one of those like yeah. common rom-com jobs, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And it's all like Carrie Bradshaw. How are you affording that oh, yeah. apart? Carrie like, Bradshaw just, is not a good representation of journalism. You know, the other one that gets me as well, which I only realized when I saw a rerun on TV lately, later, and I don't think you ever watched it, but Charmed, where um, Alyssa Milano's character, Phoebe, is like the advice columnist, and she full on has like an office in the newspaper. Okay, as at an least Carrie Bradshaw I know. wrote from home, you know. Yeah, I know, and like, it's only recently where I was, and I was like, that's the most ridiculous part of the whole show like the the magical stuff totally believable but what so yeah I think that stuff I'm critical of but the stuff I talk about on here has been genuinely good so press is really really good if you're if you're a journalist and you and you like that sort of stuff I'm really enjoying Mm -hmm. it uh so we should just fill people in on what happened last week we are all safe we We should say that we are all safe um no one even that we really know has been affected by any of these dramas but michelle will be able to explain them a lot better but 
Man, our central Queensland has had a crazy week. <laughs> oh, I know. And like, did you see that meme just for Australia that's like, Queensland's on fire, New South Wales is underwater, and there's, and there's a demonically a large cow? <laughs> yep. So to fill you in, guys, there's been a demonically large cow found in Western Australia. It's like four times the size of a normal cow. I don't know what It's like two metres tall or something, which is insane. Like it is... It just towers over the other cows and cows are already big. I don't... I feel like we have to try and find something for show notes. Its name is Knickers. If you Google big Knickers in Perth, you'll find it. (laughs) I don't know whether we should be advising people to Google big Knickers. It'll come up. It's the name of the cow. That's how I found it. I saw a picture and then... Mon asked me to find a link and I was like, big knickers. <laughs> All our British listeners are like, this what? could lead to some very, very bad no. searches. Knickers is the name of the cow, I promise. Yes, it is. Can confirm. Can confirm. Um, so basically last Wednesday, I think the temps got up to like 44 degrees. Yeah, so let's say 43 or 44. Oh, and we've had we a did week. Have, we did have a heat wave of weeks over 36 wasn't it over 39 i think it was like 39 30 it was like 39 40 most of the days so that was from like sunday to well it's still happening at home Mm. until maybe today um but by so we had the heat wave started on like the saturday or sunday and by the wednesday it was just like Literally being outside felt like you were in a fan forced oven. Like it there did was because there were also seventy degree seventy degrees. Seventy kilometer winds. Yeah. So the winds were really, really hot and gusty and but that gusty air was just hot, mm-hmm. just like burning your face. And we are used to dealing with severe storms in Queensland and watching places like Melbourne and Victoria deal with these severe bushfire conditions because usually for us it's really hot during the day and then about 4 p.m you get a cracker of a storm and a and tree just, goes through someone's house and like it just cools down and you're that's like what awesome yeah. that's what happens so no, it's bushfire season us. is not really a thing in queensland so it was a bit of yeah a- not this not this extreme no. and i've only ever seen conditions like this in victoria and in fact capricornia or central queensland was upgraded to the highest fire level of catastrophic, which I there's never been used in Queensland before. It was so dangerous. So we had, but I went to lunch and everything was normal. And I came back and a fire that had been Half going. Central Queensland was on fire. Yeah, like yeah. a fire that had been going for a few days. That sort of stuff happens regularly. It burns in inaccessible bushland, and the fire is just kind of keep it under control. That had got out of control then probably because of the winds and then there was another fire south of us which I think had been sparked that day and then another fire a bit north of us so we were surrounded by fire um and living in hell (laughs) yeah and they basically like told 8,000 people you should evacuate because your whole town could be wiped out and it was so scary uh in the newsroom like we were just constantly like every five minutes refreshing or less than that, refreshing the current fires and finding new fires um, on the like rural fire website. And we were just hearing so much stuff. We were constantly like, I just was a haze of like fire coverage because we were updating every minute on our website. Mm -hmm. And like we had so many people on our website. I'm surprised it didn't crash. Like it was incredible and um we've never experienced anything like that before no we haven't the whole town was freaking out like 
several people who like I work with you know Mm. everyday life lived here their whole lives and they're like I've never seen anything like this and you could tell people were concerned even my boss was concerned and he's been here for 20 years and I was like Fraser is everything gonna be okay and he's like I don't know it's pretty worrying and I was like oh my gosh it was just crazy and like when your parents say that's something you should be worried about. I'm like, oh my God, my You're editor's like, oh worried no. about this. <gasps> yeah. yeah. And then the, then yesterday, the Yeah. Oh so yesterday we've heard we weren't there. Thank goodness we got out. Like I, this is why I booked an early flight. I told Jack to book an early flight because I wanted to get here and not be delayed for the show. But basically um, in the afternoon, some mega storm hit and we were just seeing on Facebook, like the shops were flooded and like this is like double height shopping center complex was flooded. Um, there was hail. Yeah. Uh, Several places in town lost power. Yeah, and I mean like people I know were posting pictures like someone had a lightning strike in their backyard and it brought down a big huge tree in their nursery. Um, nursery sister- garden, nursery, yeah, nursery not garden, yeah. baby nursery. My sister sent me a video driving like my mum was driving and I could tell it was my mum's car don't worry everybody so my sister sent me a photo while mum was driving and she was just like I'm I'm scared because it was like all rain and a bit of hail but that was earlier yesterday afternoon so I don't know if it was hailing quite then but I feel Again. like it was over by like 5.30 and like thank God someone at work was already going to our house to like check on Percy and stuff um, because I was suddenly like, oh my God, can you check that everything's okay? I left my car out. Like, yeah, it was, it was scary from afar and I used to get actual like one of my anxiety triggers, which I didn't realize at the time because I didn't realize I had anxiety, would be severe thunderstorms. Mm. Um Clearly, I mean, that would happen a lot in central Queensland, as yes. I've just said. Yes, we don't have fire season. We have storm season. But Hence we just happen to have both in the same week. Yeah, I would be like sick every time there was a severe thunderstorm warning, which is almost every day of summer. Um, so I'm kind of over that now. But still, if there's a big storm, like I'm really glad I wasn't there because I would have been sh- like I would have been having a panic attack because that sort of stuff freaks me out so much. Like mm. I just... Oh, I can't deal with it. But um, hopefully our weather settles down. I say that knowing it's now summer. And that all happened at the end of November, which is technically spring. So exactly. Summer's going to be fun. Yeah. And after yesterday's storm, let's hope we can at least get back to Rockhampton this afternoon. Yeah. Although at least we've not got a show to go to. So that's okay. (laughs) Like, only got to go to work tomorrow, whatever. Yeah. Only start at 6am. It's all good. (laughs) But yeah, like we've come down here. We saw our show. We had an amazing time. Eliza is fabulous. Of course. And she had a lot to say about like feminism and stuff too, which I really agreed with and that was the idea that you don't just blindly support other women because they're women because if someone's an asshole don't support them support people because they're good people and yeah yeah and even of course like everything if you've ever watched any of her specials every joke about like some dumb thing girls do like there were a few about weddings and things like that and it's like funny so funny but you know, it wasn't about like, oh, a dumb wedding tradition. It really is like, why are we still doing this when these are derived from, you know, when people literally used to purchase women yeah. and not know who they were marrying and all these different like, things. So. Articulate to why I feel so uncomfortable about weddings for myself 
And like she said too, she's like, I have to double down on everything and, you know, because someone will get offended, but I'm just telling you, this is my opinion of Mm. this tradition. If you want to do that, that's fine. And that's how I feel too. Like have your weddings. That's fine. But I don't really want a big wedding or a wedding at all. I just want to just, just go off and get married in a little registry office or something. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think i think she definitely made a good point about the veil checking the goods oh and yeah that was so weird. I think she was so great she's like guys in the audience why would you want to cover her face why would you want to cover her face <laughs> like it was just it was very good and she's like it's rhetorical you don't have to answer me but just think about it like why would you want to cover her face yeah she was very funny and very interactive like yes. the way that she yeah because you know a room full of her fans like you know people were screaming things and clapping and like you know when we would laugh at a joke she'd be like okay good that one translates you know. <laughs> and she was very um she made a really funny joke she's like oh so now I'm not going to do everything from the Netflix special and I can see a few of you are really happy about that you're like oh my gosh she's just gonna do the same jokes again like <laughs> she was really honest and upfront and and yeah. made a joke about it because yeah. she would know that everyone has already watched the special. And we told her that we haven't watched the special since it came out because we didn't want to like ruin the thing. She's like, that's great. You can watch it again now. I was like, we could have watched it 10 more times. Oh my God. <laughs> so yes, it was, it was very good. It was very good. So much fun. Yes. <sighs> okay, okay. So now. Enjoy our interview. We loved this one. So we loved this yeah. one. And when we actually spoke to Zoya, I don't think either of us had finished the book, but we both have now and it was incredible. You must pick it up. One of my top reads of the year. For Definitely. Sure, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So enjoy. Joining us this week is a writer and editor who has recently released a memoir exploring race, religion and feminism. She's also the founding editor of Feminazi and based in Canberra. Welcome to Better Words, Zoya Patel. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's just get straight into it. And for people who aren't familiar with No Country Tree Woman, um, why did you want to write this book? Sure, that is a good question. And it's one that I've had a lot of opportunities to think about while I've been kind of doing the um, the book promotion tour. Because I realized pretty soon after I finished the book that it wasn't even like I was driven by a particular goal. It was almost like I had to write this book. Like every time I went to try and write about something else or another topic that interested me or even fiction, I just kept coming back to these issues around identity um, and race and feminism. And I got to the point where I realized that part of what I needed to explore to be able to free myself up to write about those other topics that I wanted to was this continual push-pull that I have with my Australian identity and my Fijian Indian identity. And I think what's often missed about that, definitely in other kind of sources of media that I've consumed, is the gap that exists not just between mainstream Australia and migrant cultures, but also within migrant cultures. And that's really what I try and get out um, through No Country Woman. So I guess I wanted to write a book that helped me figure a lot of that out. And I think that's quite evident in the way that I write. But I also wanted to have something available for people like me who might not see themselves represented in the more traditional narrative of of immigration that we have in popular culture, uh, but at the same time might still feel a bit lost in it about their identity the way that I always have. I think that sums it up perfectly. (laughs) Yeah, it really does. (laughs) Um, It's such a deep 
and like really personal reflection um for me it felt like you know I was just sitting down having a chat with you really like it was really wonderful and I felt like I really knew you even though obviously until now we've never spoken (laughs) um and a lot of that involves you know your family and your culture because um while it's your story um obviously your family is just as much a part of that and um like talking about your sisters and their seemingly stronger connection to their heritage and and how you felt different and stuff how have your family like reacted to that how did they feel you know what did they say when they read the book yeah it was quite challenging writing the book knowing that they would be reading it and being really aware of the fact that a lot of the ways that I feel about our experiences in Australia and our experiences balancing our cultural and religious influences um, are really different from the way that everyone else in my family might feel about them. So before I even started writing the book, when I knew that there was a chance that I'd want to write about these kinds of topics, I kind of flagged it with my parents and you know they reacted in different ways my dad is always like just try anything it's worth it you know we'll figure it all out my mom was a little bit more concerned about what that would actually look like and as I write in the book it's actually very unusual to share this much of our personal lives in our culture like you just don't talk about this stuff so I think more than being concerned about anything that I would write it's just an alien concept to even have our personal lives shared in a public forum at all for us. So I had to kind of unpack that a bit much earlier on in the process. Um, and then I actually just went ahead and wrote the book and I didn't even let them see it or read it until it was bound um, as an actual book, which most people think is like a really risky decision to take. And in retrospect, it probably was, but at the time, it just felt like the most natural thing to me was to write it in my own words um, and get across everything that I felt and then let them read it so that they knew that it's not trying to represent their experiences. It's very much my interpretation of our shared lives. So when I did finally give it to my parents, um, first they bickered over who would get to read it first. Um, and then I think my dad like stole it from my mom's bedside drawer and like went to the spare room and stayed up all night and read the whole thing. And he loved it. He was quite confronted by aspects of it, I think. I don't think that they had a clear understanding of how much I grappled with my identity growing up. Like they knew that there were things that didn't always work for me, but I don't think they understood how integral that struggle was to my experiences as a teenager uh so he really enjoyed it but yeah definitely found that he learned a lot from it in that sense and my mom was the same I think for her it also brings together a lot of our shared experiences and kind of celebrates that uh which she probably wasn't expecting and in that way it was it was quite an emotional read for everyone in my family my siblings were much the same and I feel like it's really brought us closer together in a way like part of the same cultural um, attitudes that don't allow us to talk about this stuff publicly means that we haven't even really talked as a family about some of the, you know, positive experiences that we've shared, but also some of the more negative experiences, like shared experiences of racism. And since the book has come out, we've started talking about this stuff a lot more. So I think it's had a really positive impact on my family, more so than I could have expected. That's amazing. And I think it's really interesting the way you described that 
you know, you, you wrote it yourself and it's your experience and it's your point of view because what you do often hear about, you know, memoirs and nonfiction and things like that is that people will check with this friend or their sister or their mum reads it first and, like, their mum says, oh, no, take that out or, you know, all these different things when really yeah. it is your point of view. So, you know, how can your parents or your siblings or anyone else in your family really contribute to that? Yeah, and I think it's also fundamentally about how you define memoir. So I think people often conflate memoir and biography in a way that really annoys me because the reason why I'm drawn to writing memoir and probably why it also annoys me when people say, oh, but you're so young, like how could you write a memoir? (laughs) You know, I'm like being, my age doesn't matter because memoir isn't a life story. It isn't about all of my experiences and the wisdom that I've gleaned from them. Memoir should be about using personal experience to explore and extrapolate out into a broader cultural or social issue. And I think that's why it's powerful is because often we need personal experience and we need to kind of make something more localised and create a better perspective on it so that people can be opened up to experiences that they might not otherwise have and therefore, you know, look at things that they wouldn't otherwise feel any kind of connection to so the reason why I wanted the book to be so clearly my experiences was because I don't think you can talk about race and identity and have my experiences in any way relate to my family's experiences really because a lot of my book is saying we're actually individuals and we can't be grouped together by the fact that we're Fijian Indian Australian and I think it's actually really fascinating how different my siblings are from me even though we've grown up with the exact same kind of um, circumstances, because to me that shows the diversity that exists within diverse groups. And it's a diversity that we don't often allow. So it's really easy for people to want my story to be representative of more stories like mine, because we usually only create space for like one or two diverse voices in the, in the mainstream. And I don't want that to be the case. I want it to be really clear that this is just my story and that we should be making space for, you know, hundreds of other migrants, whether they're the same generation or not, to talk about their experiences, which might be really different. I think that's wonderful. And like some of my favourite parts of the book, um, two two points in particular were when you talked about um, Yasmin and her, um, her approach to her religion as opposed to yours and the fact that there is that idea that there should be like a homogenized voice of Muslim women um, rather than each individual um, each individual opinion mm. I guess and there was another point and I've totally forgotten what it was <laughs> but I thought of it um, when when you were talking just then so yeah I think the Yasmin thing is something that I struggled with when I was choosing to put that in the book because even while I'm critiquing this idea that we're not allowed to have differences of opinion within minority groups and still respect each other and support each other generally I was still worried that people would misconstrue the way that I was trying to construct that argument as somehow being an attack against Yasin and I don't feel that at all like I think it's amazing that she has had such a positive experience with Islam that she feels so strongly in her faith that she feels able to practice it and still inhabit her Australian identity in a way that, you know, I really couldn't. And I think that that's 
the difficult thing that I found about it is that I really don't feel like there is space for the two stories to exist at the same time, at least not in the way that we create space in Australia right now. And that's not to say that, you know, Yasmin's experience isn't valid and interesting and shouldn't be heard, but it's saying that we then say, okay, well, that's all the spots that we had for Muslim women to speak. Like, tick, we've got Yasmin. I guess that's it then. And it's something that comes up again and again. Like, when Maxine Beneva Clark's amazing book, The Hate Race, came out um, a couple of years ago, I had a few different friends of mine who were people of colour, who were also writers, who said something along the lines of, oh, my gosh, Maxine wrote my book. And I was like, well, no, she didn't. She wrote her book. And there's nothing to say that just because there's been one book written about race and identity in Australia that there can't be more. Like, we literally allow dozens of old white men to write about the war. And <laughs> no one questions, like, whether that's totally valid. I think we could have, like, more than one brown person talking about being Australian. You know, like, I don't know why we don't allow that multitude to exist when it so clearly does. Mm. Oh, I know. That's such a good point. And, you know, I mean, it just kind of comes back to what you said before. Like everyone's experience is different, which means that everyone has their own individual story. So no, she didn't steal the (laughs) story and neither did you because your different, your experience is different than everyone else's. And like if your sisters wrote a book, it would be completely different. Yeah. And you grew up in the same family, which like you said, is amazing. And it goes to show how it doesn't oh, there was this wonderful bit in your book and I was reading it in bed and I didn't like write it down on my phone, but where you were talking about how you have, like everyone is so diverse and it really doesn't matter what your background is because every person's different. And I wish I could think of the wording now because it was just, I read it and I was like, oh yes, it's such a brilliant way to put it. Mm. Um, I don't even remember that bit. Um, Also... Um, talking about the book where I'm like huh I did write that didn't I Um, it's interesting because so much of the book is talking about like you can kind of see me grappling with a lot of these issues on the page as I kind of work it out I was actually having coffee with a friend today who was saying do you worry that your opinion will change and I was like my opinion has already changed like there are definitely things where I'm like you know I still think that's true but I guess I think about it a a bit differently now or or maybe like one day I'll feel differently about that thing. And I think that's actually kind of exciting. I love that these, you know, processes and these concepts don't have to be fixed in time. And I'm actually quite enjoying unpicking it, even though now it's all like in print. Um, I hope that readers also kind of unpick it and, and see it as something that's kind of a living process rather than me saying like it's not my manifesto for how everyone should talk about race in Australia I think that part of what's enjoyable about having these conversations is that they're still relatively new and we have this opportunity to like nut it all out together um actually Veronica Roth said something similar at Brisbane Writers Festival about there there are definitely things she would change in Divergent but that's what she wrote at the time and that's kind of a a marker I guess of who she was at 20 and um, I think 
Now, I haven't actually read any of Roxane Gay's work yet, but from what I understand, she's written about, I guess, how her views have changed since uh, Bad Feminist was released. And I know um, one of my favourite comics and um, someone we're going to go see soon in December, Eliza Schlesinger, has talked a lot about how her um, views have changed and, and how she wouldn't make certain jokes now that she's made in previous like Netflix fe- specials because her opinions on those jokes, you know, about women have changed. Mm. And so mm. I think it's totally valid to to have that as a marker of how you felt in time. And actually, like, it's it's quite a special thing to be able to look back on this wonderfully written book and be like, yeah, I thought that way then. Yeah. You have and, something and in print. print. You have something in print that represents what you thought at a certain point in time, and that's pretty cool. <laughs> totally, and it's such a privilege, you know. Like even having the opportunity to to share these thoughts and have them interrogated by people who I will never meet and I'll never have the opportunity to be part of those conversations is both kind of terrifying, but also really humbling. And I think what I love about where we are right now with publishing in Australia, but also I think internationally, is we're allowing books to have that sort of lifespan. I think we're really starting to blur the lines between what we think of as kind of like higher literature and, you know, more fast-moving commercial work. And we're letting things have a life beyond the page where we can keep interrogating these ideas and they might change in time so that when you do read Bad Feminist, you don't have to read it in isolation. You can read Bad Feminist and you can read what Roxane Gay has now said about Bad Feminist, you know, years later. And you can, you know, watch the the television interviews and you can read the reviews and you can listen to the podcast. And that's kind of amazing. I can't think of a better time to be publishing work um, or to really be reading work either. Yeah, we are so lucky, especially in in Australia where we have access to so much amazing literature as well and and so many different opinions and different news sources and stuff like that. We are super lucky. Oh, I also wanted to say your parents really sound awesome from the book. Like they sound super (laughs) cool and just amazing. (laughs) Thank you. I actually, um, there was a period of time when I can't remember if it was after the book had come out and during the publicity, or I know that was also a period of time when I first started spending time with my agent, Grace, from Curtis Brown. We were kind of driving around Melbourne meeting publishers, and my dad kept coming up in conversation. And, you know, by this point, she'd read a couple of the essays uh, that I was thinking of in the book and also a novel that I'd written beforehand that touches on a lot of the same themes. And so all these stories about my dad kept coming up, and she kept asking about him. And I got to the point where I had to be like, Grace, you cannot sign my father. Like, my father cannot have the same agent as me. Like, I know he sounds fascinating. And I promise you he would write a book if someone offered him the chance to. But, like, please don't do that. <laughs> no, I'm all for that. I oh, want your dad to write a book. That's so funny. <laughs> it's also kind of funny because they came to my launch in Canberra. And my family hasn't actually seen me do any of the public speaking that I do quite regularly or kind of see me in that, in that space before. And I think they were, like, A, shocked by how many people were there. And I'd reserved them, like, seats up the front. And my two sisters were there. My brother lives in Melbourne, so he couldn't make it, but he came to a Melbourne one. And my dad, like, loves that kind of stuff. And my sisters are pretty comfortable. My mom can be a bit socially anxious. So I was quite worried about her. But there was this great moment where someone in the audience asked a question about whether I had to be brave to write about these topics. And I 
just said something like, no, I don't think so. I think the people who had to be brave were my parents. My parents had to be really brave to come to a new country with four children, to leave behind everything that they know because they're compelled to, because they know that they can't access the same opportunities and the same circumstances in the country where they feel the most at home. And I'm kind of off on this, like, totally on my high horse being like, my parents deserve a medal. And I glanced over, my mum's, like, crying. And I was like, that is all I wanted was to make my mum cry happy tears. Like... (laughs) I was like, goal achieved. Um, but everyone wanted to talk to them, and I couldn't think of anything worse for my mother. Um, I just don't think that she would enjoy that at all. My dad, on the other hand, was like, you know, handing out business cards. I don't really have to talk to anyone. <laughs> he actually, so like, side note, and I, I, I want to know what you, what you think, Caitlin, when you've read more of the book, because Caitlin just got back from overseas. So, yeah. And then I was like, oh, by the way, we've got this interview booked in. Can you read this book before Wednesday? Okay. Yeah. Um, but... Um, the your like Zoe's dad reminds me of Indy's dad and it just oh, makes really? me I was picturing our friend Indy's dad yeah actually in the in the bits that you've just said about your father it made me think of my friend Indy's dad because I've heard a lot about him because she was the friend that I was traveling with so yeah wow. and it just and it just reminds me like That's I feel so like her mum would be like that too like, yeah it no. just I, I want to know when like I just I'm picturing him and I know I know your dad won't look like him Zoya but like in my head I'm like it's Indy's dad <laughs> he's Chinese so no but no. yeah <laughs> but also yeah I was just like oh my god he's that's him it's him to rotate like I just that's so funny <laughs> it was so I, I did have some people after the launch say to me like was your dad okay? He just looked like really serious. And I had to be like, look, he has resting disappointed father face. Like <laughs> his face his face just automatically goes into like disappointed Indian father. Like, but that's not what he's thinking. It's really funny getting older, and I think this is universal, where you go from finding your parents like deeply embarrassing to realizing who they are as people and starting to have like a real affection for them in a way that's like more peer-to-peer and less about parent-child. I'm actually really enjoying that at the moment. And I do think my book has helped with that because we have gone through a lot in terms of managing the ways in which I've definitely stepped away from our kind of cultural expectations. And that hasn't always been an easy path, but I feel like the book, now that they haven't, they've had an opportunity to see where I've been coming from and, and a lot of the, thought processes and the influences that have gone into the decisions that I've made. It's almost like they feel like they can be proud of me now without having to fear what I might actually think or without having to feel defensive about the choices that I've made as if they reflect on, you know, my family. I think in that way, the book has actually been this really wonderful tool for us to come together a bit more. That's That's so so awesome. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, and I did want to ask you about the book. So we've, you know, kind of discussed, you know, the effect of the themes or whatever on your family, but how did you find actually writing it? Like, you know, I don't know Going how to put it. Like, yourself. yeah, you know, reminiscing mm-hmm. and, you know, thinking about, you know, <laughs> I'm describing this so badly, but. <laughs> no, no, I know yeah. exactly what you mean. It's kind of interesting because. A lot of people who've read the book who know me have said you obviously went through a lot of kind of ups and downs as a teenager when grappling with these issues. It must have been hard to go back to that. And in some ways it was. It can be really sad for me to remember how confused I was as an adolescent and 
you know, I kept journals in those times and I think everyone cringes when they read their teenage journals. A thousand percent, But I actually yes. just feel deeply sad for this girl who really felt trapped between these two different cultures. Like I really didn't feel like I could have both. Um, I felt very strongly that I wouldn't be accepted into the artistic communities that I wanted to be part of and, you know, the parts of Australian life that I yearned for while also being expected to have quite a traditional Indian Muslim life. And, you know, without having ever spoken to my parents about it at the time, I assumed that they wouldn't accept the two things in in me, um, which ended up not being the case, which is great. But definitely writing the book forced me to go back to that a lot and that was difficult in some ways but I think what really helped was I wasn't in Australia at the time so I wrote pretty much the whole book in Scotland where my partner and I were on you know that kind of classic gap year thing that Australian young people do making the most of the two-year visa um you know it ended up being shorter than two years because of, of the book coming out um but I think that's a good reason to cut a trip short but being so far away actually really helped me have a bit of clarity and not physically seeing my family in that time was good as well. Um, whilst I really missed them, I think it gave me a chance to try and put myself into their points of view a bit more and unpick some of the things that I took for granted. You know, I think a lot of the book is me trying to understand what it would have been like for my parents to come to Australia and as a result of that, why they cling so much more strongly to our cultural traditions than I do. And I think having the distance made the writing of that, you know, much, much easier. I also think writing essays, it almost feels like cheating. It didn't feel like writing a whole book because I can finish an essay and be like, well, that's done. And I'd like reward myself with a piece of cake or a scone and like that was the end of that. Um, (laughs) Whereas, you know, writing a whole book, it feels like the commitment required, um, is probably deeper. I felt like the book just kind of happened um, in between all these essays that I was writing. It made it made for a really good like um, reading experience too. Like it's quite easy to read, and I've just like gobbled it up. And also, I think that's because it is that sort of style where you do feel like it's just you chatting um, that makes You're just it so telling the story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so easy to read, and I love that. And but sometimes I feel bad saying that because I'm like, oh, people spend a long time writing books, and I'm like, yeah, I read it in a few hours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Sometimes you're like, is, the, the I think the goal is for it to be easy to read. Pardon? I think the goal is always for it to be easy to read, and I think also because I talk a lot about other writers that I admire and things that I've read, and I was always conscious that that could be really boring um so I've been really relieved that most people have said that it's been yeah it's been a relatively easy read considering that I'm talking about issues that aren't always easy for people to read and you know I know you mentioned earlier um Michelle when we were talking before we started recording how it can feel a bit strange sometimes having to acknowledge you know like I'm a white girl and like I haven't had these experiences But I think what I really noticed from the responses that I've had to the book is most people have a experience of feeling like an outsider or a minority, no matter what that is from, you know, like whether that's from a different experience that you have, whether it's from where you live, whether it's just from being into stuff that you didn't feel like, you know, the majority of the people at your high school went into. I think that sense of feeling like you're always a little bit on the outskirts is a little bit more universal than just race. And it's been pretty amazing realizing that people can connect to the book and not just 
the worst thing for me would have been if people read the book and just felt either guilty or alienated because I do talk about structural racism a lot. And I think I try really hard to make it clear that that's not about individuals, it's about systems. Um, and so actually to hear that, you know, a white reader found it an easy read makes me really happy. <laughs> <laughs> I I think oh well like see I don't I, I feel like I'm not like a normal reader because like I'm a journalist and I feel like I'm more like like well informed but like I feel yeah. like I'm definitely a lot more like um much to my conservative parents dismay a lot more um liberal like small l liberal <laughs> than um yeah. maybe like a lot of people but then as like as we were talking about before Zoya you kind of surround yourself with people who think the same so like Caitlin and I have very strong feminist views and um the people that we follow online are like that as well and so I sort of just feel like yeah yeah, I've I've surrounded myself with these people and I work in a newsroom which is very open to you know a lot of oh Oh my goodness my animals are going just it's the it's the weather. We're having some rain, and they're just they're just. Oh. Well, it's Queensland. We don't we never have rain. They we don't never know what's rain. going on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's and I I think it's so interesting though that you say that there are experiences everyone can relate to because I I do I do feel like that like my my teenage years like well, oh woe woe is me um yes, privileged white girl but um everyone like, still feels alone I felt or like so an out of place yeah excluded I was or, like yeah. I'm like this fat anxious mess and no like I just yeah. I felt so alone and I felt. I went to a private school, but I felt really out of place because my dad was a taxi yeah. driver who drove nights to help pay for this this privilege of going yeah. to this school. And I felt so like, I felt like I had to work really hard to pay that back. So in that sense, I kind of, um, I kind of related a lot to what you were saying about how your parents had worked so hard to, to totally. give you this to give you this privileged life and stuff and I definitely saw because my dad yeah, my I, dad's a lot I, older so like he grew up yeah. in a very poor situation and definitely has spent his whole life like just worked from the time he was eight totally. and, and so, I really yeah. think that like economic inequality is one of the single biggest issues that we have right now that is being co-opted by you know far-right politics to just piggyback onto what is ultimately like racist rhetoric that you know people like Donald Trump like to use but it's something that I tried to write about a lot was this idea that actually when I'm talking about racism the reason why I'm talking about structures is because I think that racism is often used as a tool to like reinforce class class systems and economic inequalities that that are bad for everyone and racism just becomes a way of creating a scapegoat when actually you know it's it's absolutely inconceivable to me that we have such high rates of poverty in Australia. You know, we're a country with a relatively small population. We should be able to do better. And yet, you know, your story isn't that dissimilar to other people that I know, especially in regional areas like where I grew up and, you know, where I went on that bizarre Harmony Ambassador tour that I write about where, you know, we're shipped around New South Wales to spread the word of racial equality when really, like, what we were doing was going to places where these kids had way less opportunities than we had. And often we were speaking at public schools where we knew that the demographic was generally your kind of lower middle class to working class. 
And I just don't think they had any interest in hearing from me at that point, a very middle class Canberran from a pretty nice public school with every kind of possible privilege at that point. You know, what did they really want to hear from me about other than me standing up there and saying, I'm brown, that's not so bad. Like, you know, please don't be racist. I think like to me, difference is about so much more than race and it's about more than gender and I don't think that we talk about it in as nuanced a way as we need to because I'm tired of creating more lines between people I'm really more interested in trying to get rid of those lines a little bit and I think that's the thing that I I struggle with now even like looking back on the book sometimes I think to myself and I just created another way to point out difference by focusing so much on the things that make me different or will this eventually be a tool for bringing people together which I guess is all that I can really hope yeah look I hope it's the the latter yeah definitely (laughs) definitely the latter but that was very well said yeah and I I found that too like when when you discuss um your vegetarianism as well and the fact that um, even being able to do that or to be able to have a pet is such a privilege that so many other countries and so many other people in other countries don't have because their relationship to animals is is based purely on the, the practical sense. And um, the, the bit that really got me was when you wrote about how um, you were visiting like family in India and you didn't eat any of the meat, but your mum was like, they they don't buy meat for themselves. They bought this um, for for us to make sure that um, their guests had meat because it was seen as such a privilege to be able to eat that. And I was just like, wow, like we have no idea. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I had no idea. I still remember at that point being like, I don't understand why they can't just like go to the supermarket and like buy some meat. Like I honestly, at that point, I genuinely didn't understand it. And the other thing I didn't understand was a lot of those families had like chickens and goats that they had. And I was like, why wouldn't they just kill one of these animals? Like, obviously at that point, I strongly disagreed with the concept of killing any animal, but I was confused by that. And it didn't occur to me that for many people, their lives are actually about constantly sacrificing and constantly putting the goal of making money to just support their families ahead of the immediate pleasures of say eating chicken for dinner like they had to keep those chooks so that they could have the eggs that they could sell and it was that like hand-to-mouth kind of lifestyle that I had never visit visualized before like I'd never seen that and I didn't understand it and I think it was really important that I saw it at that point in my life because I could have become a very kind of boring high horse vegan type if I hadn't had the opportunity to get a pretty strong kick to my perspective that made me realize that you just can't judge other countries and other people really for the choices that they make until you understand the full picture. Because it was really easy for me. It's even easy for me now to be a vegetarian because I can afford all of the overpriced soy products, you know, whereas realistically, like, of course, homeless people eat a high rate of McDonald's. Because what are they meant to afford? What can you buy these days for like less than five dollars that you can actually eat and consume? And I think that that, to me, coming back to that constant intersectional approach is really important. Um, and it's something that I do a lot, which is trying to look at everything through the lens of not just race and not just gender, but also inequality in all of the different ways that that exists. 
Yeah, I think intersectionality is really the magic word there, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment called Know Your Place and it's um, essays by working class writers in Britain. And that's really interesting too, talking about things like that, talking about um, using food stamps and the idea of um, food as treats. And the like, I've, I've only actually got that far. I've only got two essays in. But um, <laughs> I, I think that that inequality is something we don't talk about because we don't see ourselves as like a Dickensian society with class, especially yeah. in Australia where we're all like, we're so egalitarian here. And it's the yeah. lucky country. and You don't really think about the different classes and that sort of caste system in Australia but it's totally there Mm. because it's not like oh your kid's a chimney sweep now and you're an aristocrat it's not like Victorian London that we imagine it's you know it's not as defined as that no but it's the idea that like for example, um, if, if you're from a farm, you're probably, and from a rural area, you're just more likely to go into that area of work because you don't have the opportunity to explore yeah. that. And studying away from home is really expensive. If you're yeah. lucky, your yeah. parents will send you to what will be quite an expensive boarding school and then you may get more opportunities that way but there's still a pressure maybe that you have to come back to the family farm exactly because there's that generational yeah. aspect of not coming back to the farm Mm. and you wanting to go so it is very yeah I mean that's just one example and I think part of the way that that gets reinforced is we have a real um cultural choice in Australia of making everything highly individualized so you know we're always talking about people like pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and anyone can make something of themselves and it's the hard workers who get ahead and you know blah 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 and it's really just like a series of fairy tales that we tell children that makes them feel like it's always their fault if they can't get ahead. Whereas we're not actually talking about the fact that like the single biggest, single biggest indicators of a child's success are the economic wealth of their parents, because that means that they will probably have the ability to go home and do their homework and have support in doing that and, you know, be encouraged to do well in school as opposed to going home and probably having to help out around the farm that they might live on or in their parents' small business if that's what's happening or worse, like if you live in a situation where you've had generational unemployment, that is something that will continue to occur. Like that is a that's an inherited issue. And it's not something that is a result of laziness. And it's not something that's a result of just an unwillingness to work. It's systemic. And you know, when I was I think I was like 22 I was on the Australian Social Inclusion Board, which was like a federal government initiative that was all about trying to address inequality in the biggest areas of disadvantage in Australia. And one of the things I did was I went to this unemployment seminar that they were having in Melbourne. And it was a group of people who had been unemployed for quite a long period of time. And the goal was to try and understand, you know, why. Um, and get a better sense of whether the systems were working to support them. So these are people who are new start. And there was a huge range of people who were there, everyone from like, you know, somebody who'd been a really high-powered businesswoman who had had a diagnosis of a chronic illness and just couldn't work the same way anymore and was really struggling to find work. Or there was a young man who um, had found out that he was epileptic, so he couldn't work with anything with screens which like heavily limits your options when you're kind of university educated and you expected to have a certain pathway. But the story that really struck me was this one guy who was there who looked like the kind of person that you're told to like cross the street when they approach, right? Like 
looks a bit like edgy, like really bad teeth and skin, very unclean, like creepy looking back, black clothes. And when he was talking, he was saying that the most amazing experience that he had had recently was this work for the doll program where he got to go and help volunteer for a rural fire service. And all he was doing was like moving like boxes of donated goods um, at some bushfire stricken area, like around and like making teas and coffees. And he was like, I felt so valued and like I was actually doing something and I had a purpose and it was just amazing. And he talked about how isolated he was normally, like day to day. He had no one who he could spend any time with. And he was showing up to the jobs office every day and never getting an interview for anything. And I just was thinking to myself, like, these are the people that our government think a dull blood is. Like, this guy, you can tell, is palpable. All he wants is to work and have some kind of purpose in life and to be contributing and to be, like, connected to his community. And we say that it's his fault that he doesn't have, you know, gainful employment. What are we actually doing to create those opportunities? You know, like... I just think that economic inequality is still the biggest issue that we have in Australia. We just don't talk about it enough. And I've always been really driven by feminism and I'm really driven by um, multiculturalism. But more and more these days, I find myself kind of obsessing about economic inequality and just how, how like, where do you even start? Mm. I genuinely don't know. Yeah. But I would really like someone to come up with those answers. <laughs> I oh, feel yeah. like, like I, I want to solve everything now, but we're not going to solve it. Um, <laughs> but, and, and like we have gone, I mean, your book is not about economic inequality entirely. It is a really, really wonderful as as the, as the um, subhead kind of says, like race, religion and feminism. Um, and you know, it, yeah, it was really wonderful, but I like that we went off on this little tangent because yeah. it was really yeah, interesting. Sorry for my I could tell <laughs> no, no, this is like, this is like this, this we, is the whole podcast, this is what worry. our podcast is like. And this is what our conversations in general are like. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to, um, talk about the power of language as well. Cause I know you talk about that in the book, um, as a writer, someone who can so eloquently express themselves with words in in English how do you feel like it it must be I guess it is quite a privilege that we are able to use language the way that we do to you know further these things like social inequality and and like um racism and homophobia and stuff like that like we do have a lot of power in words yeah I think it is pretty amazing I feel really grateful that I came to Australia when I did, so I was three when we moved here. And I think that was fantastic because it made it a really easy path for me in terms of picking up English and feeling really confident in it. And whilst on some levels it really annoys me that there's such this there's such a supremacy of English um, globally as the key language that everyone needs to be able to speak. On one hand, I understand why that's useful, but it also kind of bothers me because I think it often creates a bit of a power dichotomy between people who can speak English really confidently as their native language and people who can't. Whilst, you know, acknowledging that as something that's problematic, I am really grateful that I'm really confident in English because it opens up so many doors. And I write in the book about how my Australian accent is in many ways my greatest armour against racism. When people hear me speak, they feel a lot more comfortable that I will be the kind of person that they're generally willing to engage with, which is your average Australian. You know, if I speak like this, then I probably have had similar experiences to them. 
And so therefore they don't have to worry about how far and I walk. And Which is so having wrong. Having to live with that. Yeah, that's totally. It's not, not it's great. A weird no. thing, it's a weird thing to be grateful for. Um, but I do feel grateful for it even while being, you know, a little bit pissed off by it. I think that using language is 100% a gift. And I think the power of language has been demonstrated. I mean, I can hear it in your voices when you talk about the books that you love. I've certainly had that experience. The things that have had the biggest influences on me and the biggest impacts have 100% been books that I've read. And I think there's something about that that is so magical and addictive. It feels like even if no one was reading my work, I couldn't not write for that reason because there's just so much potential in it. And I'm one of those people who will obnoxiously recommend like a hundred books to anyone who allows me. Yeah. Again, literally what our sitting whole in my study right now staring at like literally hundreds of books, um, which my cat likes to trash. She like comes in here in her witching hour and she like runs along all the books and tips them over. So I'm constantly that. like fixing it again. But see, we were obnoxious just, to think that we were like, yeah, people want to listen to us talk about books. Yeah, I mean, we've only course. recently made it just <laughs> interviews because before then we were like, oh, yeah, people totally want an hour of us just talking about books. Like, yeah. who do we think we are? I know. <laughs> I think that that is actually a very like valid decision to make a podcast if you guys just talking about books. I, for one, will 100% be listening. But I also think that some of the most amazing conversations I've had and some of the best connections I've had with people have come from a shared love of a certain book. Um, obviously Harry Potter is a big one um, because that's just been a huge influence in my life and like I think a lot of people in our generation more generally but I just love that you can inhabit this imaginary world together and that actually brings you closer together as people in the real world. Like Honestly I, most of my friendships were built on the foundation of Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Or, or just totally. books in general. There are also like, yeah, like think about how many books have been sparked from, you know, one amazing series. And then if you dig back further and you think about all the books that led to J.K. Rowling even writing Harry Potter, kind of this, this one thing that humanity has really done well after we've talked about a lot of the things that humanity is doing like really badly. I feel like books, um, we can give ourselves a solid kind of pat on the back for that one. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I'm going to I'm going to plug podcasts there, too, because um, Caitlin and I have had some amazing experiences even before we started podcasting of finding other women to be friends with purely because we like the same podcast. And that in itself is an amazing thing. And like the Facebook groups that spring up around podcasts are just amazing. And like we've had random strangers do favors for us or we've done favors for random strangers purely because we're in a Facebook group because we love a certain podcast and that just gives you hope for the future, I think. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I love that. And it seems like a very, um, like a female thing as well. Like I do talk to a lot of my female friends about podcasts that we love. I really don't do that very much with the men in my life, but I don't know if that's just like a personal bias where I decided that they couldn't possibly like the same podcast that I love um but I think the community building around shared interests is something that I have experienced the most with close female friendships um and I kind of love that like I love that connection that can be built out of whether it is a podcast or a book or a film just that shared understanding that like if you like this you're totally my people like 
we will get along. Yeah. Pretty special. Literally how Caitlin and I became friends. Yeah. Caitlin and Indy and I at a musical where I was like, oh, what are you reading? And they were like, oh, you won't know it. And I was like, oh, well, I read YA too. And they were like, oh. Yeah. And yeah. We totally shunned her at the beginning. We were like, "Mm, no. Like, don't. You won't know. Which is exactly what I did when people would ask me what I'm reading. And I'm like, oh, like, you're not even going to know what I'm reading. Because it's it's just, you're, we're in small town, regional Queensland. And now I tell people because Michelle knew. (laughs) So now when people ask, I tell them. And then when they haven't heard of it, I'm like, damn. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think if you can find like one diamond amongst the rough, that's still like a pretty good thing. We had this lovely new girl start at work, and I was like so excited. She's like a mini me. I just love her so much. And like, I remember she came to work and she was talking about to all the boys I've loved before and how many times she'd watched it. Uh-huh. And I was just like, you're my person. And we go and read on our lunch breaks. And I'm giving her your book after we after I finish oh, reading it tonight. And because um, I've got like I fell asleep today on my day off. <laughs> Um, but like after, and she's giving me the hate you give. So like doing a book swap and. I literally read that recently and I loved it. It was so good. Cause I, like, I'm coming back to YA after, you know, you go through that period where you're like, oh, I shouldn't read young adult anymore because like I'm an adult and people will think that I'm not into like literature or something. And now I'm going back and reading like all these amazing books that have come out that for some reason I didn't allow myself to read. And I loved The Hate You Give. It was so good. And also I loved To All the Boys I've Loved Before, like an unreasonable amount. Like I've watched that now like way too many times. And I have this joke with my um, with one of my best friends about how it makes me really happy to think of Aiden from Sex in the City. Like getting over Sarah Jessica Parker and, like, moving to the suburbs and meeting this amazing Korean woman and, like, retraining as a gynecologist and, like, raising three amazing daughters um, because I really like protecting I love, like, matching fandoms like that to the cracking up. See, yeah. I just um, thought of it as, like, because um, he's the guy in my big fat Greek wedding. So I just thought of it as, like, a different yeah. culture, but this is, like, this is what my big fat Greek wedding, like, this is the same kind of oh, cultural thing. I hadn't yeah. thought of that because, to me, he's Aiden yeah. from Sex and – like, predominantly Aiden from Sex and the City, so. That's a really good point, though. I hadn't thought about that connection. Yeah, yeah. and I think um, it's only because I watched funny because the third. Aiden from Sex and the City, like, you know, <laughs> his wife or whatever that he ended up with, they had like three sons or something, I think. So now he's <laughs> so got three girls. Imagine three girls. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like. Someone actually said that to me at my book club on the weekend because I was making the same joke, which I clearly make too often. And I was like, I'm sorry, but those movies do not count. Like, they are not part of canon. I'm not even including those movies. Like, I'm like, I, it ends with the last series. Thank you very much. Aww. I mean, I, I kind of agree, the but the movies are fun. And the book is really good as well. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so what else are you working on at the moment? You mentioned a novel, so can we see a novel from you soon? In like I'm excited to read anything you write now. Um, oh, having a little thanks. bit of a fangirl over you and Brie Lee and like all the amazing <laughs> young women at the moment who are just making me feel like a little bit inadequate um, because you're all so awesome. <laughs> Um, please don't feel inadequate because like I always say to people, you don't get to see the amount of time I spend, like A, watching Netflix, B, like refusing to eat my dinner or like, you know, lying in the fetal position on the couch after I've done an event and having like my boyfriend force me to eat scrambled eggs. So there's like things that we do well and things that we don't do as well. 
Um, I did write a novel first. So I actually wrote a novel that was what defines me to Curtis Brown, which deals with a lot of similar things. So it's um, literary fiction and it also looks at the experience of um, a migrant family in Australia, but it's more centered around these three central characters as a mother and two daughters and um, a kind of big split that happens in their family and then the forced rejoining of that over several um, months. So there's that, and I would really love to revisit that, but I'm also working on um, a different novel at the moment because I wrote that one um, a couple of years ago. So I'm toying around with some more kind of contemporary fiction um, as well. And I guess we'll just see what happens. Um, I'm really lucky in that I do have an agent and I can kind of bounce stuff off her. And, um, you know, this book has only been out for a couple of months, so it feels really hard for me to think about moving on to the next thing. But I think it'll definitely be fiction next for me. Oh, wonderful. Well, yeah, we are already looking forward to that. Um, Where can people find you online and follow? Yeah, I am on all of the social medias under Zoya J Patel. Um, and I do have a website that I try and keep updated with events and things like that, which is just www.zoya-patel.com. Fantastic. Um, and, of course, Michelle's just looking at me because everyone <laughs> can find us at Better Words Pod and betterwordspodcast.com. So thank you so much for joining us, Zoya. It's been lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been an awesome chat. Yay.